Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you follow along in the study, you will gain an intimate relationship with the most prominent character in this book. And when we think of the book of Acts, we think of the apostles. But it's not Peter. It's not Paul. It's called the Holy Spirit. Or what, we, you know, or my parents' generation used to call the Holy Ghost. But, you know, we don't use that word anymore, so we call, just call it Spirit. They're interchangeable there. Even the scholars call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It was not, not, not till the second century that they started calling it the Acts of the Apostles. If you, you flip to the front, it'll say the Acts of the Apostles. That started in, you know, like 150, 200 A.D., But the scholars call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because that's what it's about. And my hope is that we begin a journey of living in the Spirit through this book. Well, let's jump right into it. Acts 1 says, In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all uh, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, if you've never read the book of Acts, I want to encourage you to to take time this week. It'll take, you know, a half an hour, depending on if you're a fast reader, to three hours if you're a really, really, really slow reader. But it can be done. And I, w- I would like for you to do that. And then, you know, as we go along, maybe keep a chapter ahead as, in the reading as, as we go really slow. We'll only be in the book of Acts for about 30 weeks. I, I cut it down. We were going to be in it for a whole year, and I cut it down, so that's good. But you will see some very exciting things in this book. It reads well and it teaches well. The simplicity and the power of this book just jumps right out to you. The first chapter of Acts is like that interval between thunder and lightning. Now, I grew up in Texas where we had big storms, and I kind of miss those storms. But you would have this lightning strike, and you would just wait for the thunder. You know, and we always had this theory about, you know, if you counted how many seconds, that's how many miles it was. I don't know if it's true or not. It's just what we did as kids. Sometimes the thunder and lightning would be really close together and it would just like make you jump. Uh, at college, I, I lived uh, uh, in a groundskeeper's place. All the trainers underneath, we call it underneath the, the, the stadium, but that sounds like I was homeless. It was actually a little groundskeeper's apartment and all the trainers lived in there. And the, and the thunder would, would just roar through that stadium because it was all cement. And it would just, I mean, literally it would make us jump out of bed sometimes. It was so loud. But the book of Acts is that interval between the thunder and the lightning. You have a flash of light. Is everything that Jesus said and did for 33 years. And then he had his burial, you know, his death, burial, and resurrection. And the interval between, you know, uh, of chapter 1, before the thunder of chapter 2 happens. It's a storm that just rocks the world. 
Never in the history of the world do you have a 30-year period more powerful than Jesus. But the second most powerful 30-year time is that 30 years immediately following Jesus. If as a Christian you have an understanding of what happens between 4 B.C. when Jesus was born, we all think it's 0 A.D. or whatever you want to call it, year 0. It was really 4 B.C. They kind of messed up on the calendar a little bit. But between 4 B.C. and about A.D. 60, if you have a, a good feeling for that time period, then you will have a good feeling for the last days. Because many of the same things that happened during that time period will happen during the last days. We have a chance to see the power of God invested in our community once we read this book. Because we can be used in that power to affect our community. If we're willing to listen and act upon what the Holy Spirit has for us, and if our motives are that we want to see the Holy Spirit be used within our community, not that we want to do some miracle or something just to get the attention, but from the standpoint of being used by the Holy Spirit within our community, then I believe it can and will happen. But if our goal is just so it would be really cool, then I don't think it will happen around us. Because the Lord searches the hearts of man. The Lord looks at our hearts and looks at our motives. You know, there are places in this world, and India is, is one of those, that the name of Christ is, in, in certain places has never been uttered. There are villages that have never heard the name of Christ at all. And de- demonic forces have literally ran rampant during those times and, and, and you know, for centuries in those villages. Then when the gospel does come, powerful things happen. You know, those in the villages have no trouble believing in God. Did you know that the Hindu religion has 33 million gods? They have no trouble believing in a God. What is difficult for, you know, concept for them is the idea of one God coming. And that God being the Messiah, that God being the answer, that God being the God of gods, the creator of the world. That's the difficulty that they run into. So miracles are happening in these villages just to get their attention, to show them that, that God is powerful, that their gods are powerless, weak, and, and ineffective, and that the God of the universe is the most powerful God there is. And it gets your attention when somebody is healed right in front of you. Now, a friend of mine went to India for, for a month to teach, uh, to teach in their um, places that were training pastors, if you want to call it that, shepherds to go out into villages to preach the word. And through this book of, of Acts, I'm going to tell you some of the experiences that he relayed to me as he was over there. I, you know, one day I wish to make it to India. We have a lot, my wife and I, we have a lot of friends from India. In fact, if I ever do an accent, no matter what country I say I'm doing, I'm really doing an Indian accent. Because that's the only accent I know, really, other than Texan, but that's a whole other story. But one pastor, his name was Emmanuel Roger, he went to one of these pa- uh, pastor training centers in India. And these guys are out teaching and preaching, and, and, and they're, they're asked to write back about every three months to the college and, you, there. And, so, you know, some guys do this and some guys don't. But, they, you know, when they, when they write in, the colleges turn around and they, they translate it to English and they send it, uh, you know, by email now. Back then it used to be by letter, all over the world for, for people to pray for them. And, and it's very interesting. Women are highly involved in ministry over there. Much like the, the book of Acts where the 120 are gathered and the Holy Spirit just, just comes, about half of those are women. 
And we'll get to that, and we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about some of the stuff there. And, and some of you will agree, and some of you will disagree, but it's not something that we should walk away from going, well, I'm never speaking to you again. No. We can disagree on certain things, because it has nothing to do with our salvation. But this pastor wrote that the other day he was preaching the gospel, and his mouth kind of gets dry as he's preaching and, and when he gets a little nervous. So he always keeps a cup of water up there and I, I should start doing that myself. But he's holding a glass of water and a large group of Hindus are on his left and a large group of, of Muslims are, are on the right because that's pretty much all that's there in India and in a lot of these villages. And they're listening to him and this woman comes, you know, they, they practically drag this woman down the middle of the, these two groups that are separated. And this woman is of the upper class. She has lots of money. She's gone to many doctors and and could not... The doctor said, there's nothing we can do for you. And Emmanuel Rogers says that he's holding a cup of water and he feels the Holy Spirit tell him, give her this cup of water. So he prays over the, the cup of water and hands it to her and says, drink the living water. She drinks it and is healed. The next day, they took this woman to a doctor. And there's nothing there. there. She has no more problems. So the family returns to, to this pastor and says to him, what did you give her? What medicine did you give her? The pastor, Emmanuel Roger, was confused as what to say because now he had all these educated Hindus and educated Muslims coming to him and asking him all these questions about the Bible that he felt that he could not answer. So here is an uneducated, lower caste uh, person in society. And basically in India you have caste. In other words, you know, we, we say low, low, uh, lower income, middle income, high income, whatever. You know, we have that in America. We kind of have that split, okay? Well, they have caste over there in India. It's kind of the same way. And the two castes never intermarried. They never intermingled. They, that's just the way it was. That's the way it's been for centuries over there. But you have these educated men coming and following him going, what did you give her? Tell us about this Bible. Tell us about this God. So basically he was writing to them saying, send me someone who can answer these questions because I'm not educated enough. My friend that was a pastor looked over to the person translating this and telling him all this, you know, telling him what was written in the letter and goes, well, are you going to send somebody? And he goes, certainly not. We feel that a, a God who can heal the woman can certainly give this man the answers that he needs to, to, uh, to the questions that these guys have. As powerful as the healing may be, I am more amazed that the Holy Spirit can give us the words that we need when we're asked questions that we do not know the answer about when it comes to the Bible. If we live in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit can give us those answers in the situations that we face. It is the same Lord in India as it is in Tulare. We need to start praying for the power of God, especially in the middle of situations that we find ourselves. And when we begin to, to do that, a boldness and our power will come over us when we speak the truth like we have never spoken before. I want you to understand that we need to have a boldness for God. See, our God is an intelligent God. And no one can convince me that our God is not a logical God. Because there's a lot of people out there, well, logically, no. Our God is a, a, you know, Christianity is a logical religion. It's an intelligent religion. You are very intelligent to believe that a creator exists at all. You are very unintelligent to believe that there is not a creator God. 
You're very intelligent to believe that, that God has a personality. You're very intelligent to believe that the personality wants to have a relationship with his creation. That he just didn't walk away from something that he created. There's so many out there to say, hey, you know, there, there was a God he created and then he walked away. We, we never have a relationship. Well, that's something I would do. Let me create something. Let me walk away from it. That's not something that God would do. An intelligent God would want to have an intimate relationship with his intelligent people. Therefore, you are very smart to believe that Jesus Christ came. As God seeking the lost and seeking relationship with us. This is why Jesus came and, you know, he didn't come and just die on one, you know, let me rephrase that. He didn't come and just come one day and die on the cross. He could have done that to save us. No, he came for 33 years to know and to understand who we are and what we experience because he wants to have that relationship with us. It is very intelligent to believe in a man, uh, to believe in a, in a God who became a man. To live among us and to dwell with us. It is also intelligent for you to believe that, the, that God has power over his creation. So these stories are fact, by the way. When Jesus healed the sick, it was fact. When he walked through walls, he could do that. When he went up against demonic, you know, demonic forces, you know, he can do that. It is very intelligent for us to believe in that God. See, our God is a God that can relate to all different types of people in society. He can relate to the rich, but not just the rich. He can relate to the middle class. That was the word I was looking for. Somebody said it. He can relate to the middle class, but not just the middle class. He can relate to the poor, but not just the poor. Because this God is the God for everyone. Our God is an intelligent God. Now Luke, who wrote Acts, got on the you know, bandwagon late, in a sense... He was a highly educated man and he was a doctor. His writings show us how intelligent he was. He, you know, but it's very easy at the same time to read. His gospel in the book of Acts uh, you know, is very well organized. In other words, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are very well organized. A lot like a doctor would organize things. Have you ever been to a disorganized doctor? Have you ever gone back to a disorganized doctor? Hopefully the answer is no. But Luke was a doctor, and he had a friend named the Apostle Paul, and they teamed up. But Apostle Paul doesn't really show up in the book of Acts until like chapter 13 or something like that. The book of Luke and the book of Acts comprise of 25% of the New Testament, and they are written by a Gentile doctor who was a friend of the Apostle Paul. He goes back and he interviews all these different people, and he writes these two letters to a friend of his named Theopolis. Theophilus was either a Roman or a Greek bigwig, somebody who had enough money to pay for, for Luke to do all this research. Now really, the book of Luke and the book of Acts should be read together. I would love to teach them together, but that would take about two and a half years. One day we'll get into Luke and it'll probably take about a year and a half to go through it. Luke has the first 33 years of Jesus' life. And the book of Acts is the next 30 years. For many years, these, these two books were actually the, were together. For about 100 years. They, they didn't split them apart until about 100 years later. It wasn't called the Acts of the Apostles until about A.D. 150. Well, let's read a few verses. Like I said, we'll get into the book of Acts. 
In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After suffering, he showed himself to men and gave many convincing proofs. Now remember, he's a doctor. He wants proof. He's educated that he was alive. He appeared to them over 40 days. Not 39 days, not 41 days. And you will see the details with Luke. Detail after detail. And spoke about the kingdom of God. Well, let's take a look at these three verses. The author refers to his other book. And remember to to read that. Maybe take some time this week over the next couple of weeks to, to read all of Luke. It'll take a little longer than Acts. But the author, you know, he refers to this. And so this is kind of book two. And we are so thankful for a guy named Luke. In the busyness of his life in A.D. 54. And it's a very exciting time to be a Christian back then. All this stuff was going on. I mean, it was, I mean, you're talking about an up-and-coming church. That's an up-and-coming church back then. We are so thankful 1,900 years later that we can read and know that, that what happened here was fact. And first, in, in verse 1 he says, I wrote all about, or I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to, te- and to teach. And I love this word began. And if your translation that you have, and, and there's different translations, and I'm not opposed to reading one translation or the other, because really you have to go back to the Greek to real. I mean, if you're going to fight about words in a translation, you ought to throw the translation out and go find the Greek. Because that's what you've got to fight about if you're going to fight. I don't recommend fighting, but you know what I'm saying. But the word began here needs to be written in your, in your Bible if it's not there. Because it's a very important word. For Luke, this, you know, the first book was all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And now it's all about what Jesus will do through his disciples. Because he will give him the Holy Spirit. Luke is saying something here. We could get it, you know, we could get to the, uh, the end of the book of Luke... We could read about the ascension and say, wow, that is all Jesus did. That's it. But if we go and read the book of Acts, we we see what the disciples did through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Lucas is saying that, that, you know, let's see what Jesus will do through his disciples now. Act as a continuation. And when we read, you know, we get to the book of Acts, it kind of cuts off abruptly. There's no huge conclusion. You read, you know, Paul's books and he goes on and on and on at the end, thinking this person and that person, you can tell he's getting toward the end. It's like when a pastor says, in conclusion, for me, you know, I'm going to go on and on like Paul. But the book of Acts, he just cuts it right off like it's not over. We are living an extension of the book of Acts 1900 years later. Now there are people even here who feel that they've been healed by Jesus. Either a physical healing or maybe even a healing of a, of a marriage. Or for me, even a baby being born that, where you've got multiple doctors going, this is a miracle that this even happened. That's why I don't mind if he makes noises during the service. Hey, that's fine with me. Any baby, baby comes in here, I mean, they want to make noises in the service, that's fine. Now, if they get too crazy, take them to the back. But I don't mind that. There are others here who are in a financial straits and they receive the blessing of finances at the right time. 
See, we need to start recognizing when miracles happen in our lives and start writing them down and start telling people about them. Miracles get people's attention. And we need to be careful what we call a miracle. I don't... I look back at my life and, you know, I, I say it's a miracle I made it to 40, but, you know, I don't use the word miracle that often because... I mean, we think of all the times it's been misused, and especially by churches that they say stuff is a miracle and you know it's fake. And it, it does so much damage to the kingdom of God. So we run the other direction and we go, oh, no, we don't believe in miracles. Well, we believe in miracles, but I've never seen one. Miracles get people's attention. The ones who cannot be explained except by God's hand. See, our God is a miracle-working God. He didn't stop in the first century. Now Luke says, let me tell you all about the book of Acts. Verse 3 says, After suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, why do I keep saying it's very intelligent to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, if you believe that Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States, then you can believe that Jesus worked these miracles. Because it's all based on the proof of eyewitnesses. The same as the New Testament. It's based on the proof of eyewitnesses. You weren't around when Abe was president, were you? Now, Vivian French says... I almost was. She's not here today. She'll be all happy I mentioned her. But yet we firmly believe that he was president, don't we? You weren't around when they signed the Declaration of Independence, but some of you have gone and, you know, to Washington and seen some of the signatures on that document. Therefore, you believe that those people were living in the 1700s. There are all kinds of things in history that are taught in, in the same institutions that question your faith. The same workplaces that question your faith, they go, this is fact. How do you know it's fact? Well, it's history. Well, how do you know it's history? People, you know, they saw it. They saw it happen and they wrote it down. Hence, the New Testament. It's not that far-fetched to believe it. It's not that far-fetched to go there. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was uncontested for the first and second centuries no writer contested the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You will not find any writings that said there was a man named Jesus who claimed to be resurrected that was not. You will not find that in any history whatsoever. You know why? Because there was eyewitnesses and the story was told over and over and over again. You couldn't contest 500 people who talked about Jesus, who met Jesus after the resurrection. Because 500 people have a lot of friends and they told their friends and they told these stories and it went all over the world. Jesus didn't just appear to those who believed in him. He also appeared to those who did not believe in him as well. There were all kinds of things that happened during this time. Just read the, the last of all four Gospels and you will see how Jesus just appeared and appeared to all sorts of people. Think about the tomb and the proof of his resurrection. When they took Jesus down from the cross... They stuck a spear in his side to prove that he was really dead. Remember the water and the blood came out? He, you know, the parent, well, I'm not even going to try to say it. They broke the cavity that held the heart. 
And it all just came rushing out. He was obviously dead. He was not in a coma, as some would say, but he was dead. They took his body down, and Joseph of Arimathea gave him a tomb. Many people believe that this is actually the tomb itself. And here's Donna coming out of that tomb. I know, she's not here today. I'm going to get in trouble. I know I am. But this tomb is really cool. Now, it's been kind of... You know, over the centuries, different people have gotten into it. The, the Crusaders got in there, and there was actually some that held up in there for a while and stuff. So it's kind of been messed up a little. But, you know, many people believe that this is actually the tomb. Now, there's a huge rock. Now, this is not the picture of that same tomb, but I want to give you an idea. There's a groove right outside of this tomb. And there was huge rocks that they would carve out to be round like this, and they would roll them in front of that tomb. You know, l- let's take this for a second. Let's believe in the falsehood that he was alive when they took him down from from the cross. Just for a moment, okay? What type of shape do you think he would be in? The tomb was sealed up for how long? Three days. Do you think there would be any way for him to survive? Absolutely not. Crucifixion practically kills the muscles in your body to the point where they don't work anymore. It tires them out and it drains the water in your body. It, it, it just, it's excruciating. And the Romans, the Romans said he was dead. And they knew how to kill people. If anybody knew how to kill people, the Romans did. The followers didn't say, let's seal up the tomb. The Romans sealed up the tomb. And they sealed it up and they put even a, a stamp on it or a mark on it and said, don't break this stamp. Don't break this wax mold here or you will be in there with them. That was their idea. We are in power. You're not. You follow what we say. And then you have the Roman guards. On the third day, what did they see? They saw the, the rock rolled away from the tomb. And they testified it before, the, the, you know, before their court. We don't know what happened, but the body's not there any longer. They also talked about how the angels were there. But come to find out, the guards were paid and bribed to make up the story. And they were kind of doomed if they did and doomed if they didn't, because if they didn't make up a story, then there was dereliction of duty. You didn't do your duty, you were supposed to guard there. And if a Roman guard didn't do their duty, guess what? They were put on the cross. That's how it worked. So they were kind of doomed either way. No one believed this lie. So now you have the angels seated there. Jesus is gone. The wrap that was folded up over his head is, is all you know, you know, folded up neatly. And you can read in the Gospels all the times that he appeared. He first appeared to Mary. And then he appeared to the two guys going to Emmaus. He walked and talked and even ate with them to show that he was a real person. That he's not just his ghost. And then he disappeared into thin air. He walked through walls. And I can't wait for the resurrected body, you know. I believe that we will get bodies that are, that are much the same. And it gets me excited because at age 40, my body's not like it was at age 20 or 18. I don't do some of the same things that I used to do. And some of you are going... Well, I'm getting older. You want to, I can tell you how it's going to be. And I'm like, no, no, no. Let me learn for myself. Don't tell me those stories. I don't want to have to worry about that now. I'm hoping that having a kid at age 40 will just keep me young. I'm, that's what I'm praying for. But we'll see. 
You know, we're going to go through eternity with resurrected body. And this, is, this gets me all excited. And to me, the, the opposite is so dead. To believe that, that this is it, and at the end of life, that's it. Do you know your life here on earth, that you, you live and you die? I mean, how sad. My life here will continue to slow down until the day that I meet the Lord. Now, because I believe in a resurrected Lord, based upon my intelligence and the facts that are written down in history, I don't have to worry about death. I don't have to worry about that. Now, I probably will because I'm human, but I don't have to. I don't have to as much. I worry about how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, those type of worries. But I don't have to worry about what will happen to me afterward. Because one or two things are going to happen. Either the Lord is going to come back and I'm just going to fly up to meet Him, or I'm going to die and I'm going to fly up to meet Him. Either way, I get to meet Jesus Christ. Both of these have a great outcome for me. Even if I have a little stress in my life between here and there. Now, some of us are in the middle of very stressful lives. And it's important for us to come to church and, and to be reminded that, you know, reminded of the resurrected Christ and that we will go and meet him, meet him because you need to hang in there. This life is very short. Some of you feel like, man, I got all these years ahead of me. Some of you are going, it's getting a little shorter for me. But this life is so short. The stuff that you're going through will be over. Life will not always be this tough for you. This is as close to hell as you will ever get if you believe in Jesus Christ. Now Jesus hung around for 40 days so that no one could say that this is made up. Why is this so important? Because the entire basis of our belief is on the resurrected Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas That's why we celebrate Easter, and that's why there's another important thing that we ought to celebrate even more sometimes, or not more, but I mean, we don't do it enough, I mean, is Pentecost, the day that we receive the Holy Spirit. Three important dates for for Christians. Christmas is when Jesus came, the Word became flesh. Easter is the the death and the resurrection of Christ, and and the Pentecost comes where the Holy Spirit empowered His followers. Just like he wants to empower us today, giving us boldness, the ability to, to pray for, uh, for people, the ability to, to cast out demons, the ability to raise people from the dead. These things will happen in the end times. The ability to speak in truth in situations where truth is really not wanted, to speak it boldly. And the Lord wants to see this happen, not, in, not just in places like India. But here as well. Well, I was thinking about different appearances that he had. And I'm just going to throw out a few of them because we'd be here all day if I just kept going on and on. But he appeared to Mary. He appeared to the disciples. And and Thomas, you remember Thomas, he wasn't really there. And he's a very analytical type of guy. Raise your hand if you're a very analytical type of person. Now, some of you are analyzing right now. Should I raise my hand? Should I not? Uh... I don't really feel like it, so therefore I'm not going to. Okay, you're an analytical person if you think that way. If you have a mechanical pencil in your pocket or in your purse, you're an analytical person. See, I'm kind of going off of the redneck thing because I've heard those for years. You may be a redneck if. If you enjoy a computer, I mean really enjoy your computer, you're an analytical person. If you believe that you can talk long enough 
to a point where everyone will see your point of view, <laughs> you're an Atlanta analytical person. I don't know why I look at you, Randy. Well, Randy, you're a lot like Thomas. Thomas. <laughs> nice. Thomas said to them, You guys, you're nuts. You're completely nuts. He is very analytical. There are many analytical people in our world, and here is our hope. Our hope for analytical people is Thomas. For some of us that are kind of loopy in the head, Peter's our hope. Some of us have Thomas. He couldn't accept things at face value. He wanted proof. He couldn't go to church and accept what the pastor was saying. No matter how fired up the pastor was or how passionate was he was, he had to think it through. Thomas's feelings weren't wrong. They weren't bad. They weren't evil. He was just analytical. He didn't want to put faith in something that he shouldn't. He was just being himself. So what does he do? Jesus appears to him. And this is what Jesus does to every analytical person out there who says, okay, Lord, logic says there is no God, so show me that there is a God. You see, our God is a very logical person, and he can approach us on whatever level he needs to approach us on. That's why in India there's so many miracles going on, because they need to see it for them to believe. The scriptures even say, come, let us reason together. Our God is a very analytical God also. The Apostle Paul, who, who spoke quite a few languages, he felt very comfortable in many different cultures, economically, socially, racially. And his arguments, which we call apologetics, for a big church word, basically they're arguments for God. But he would debate and argue people right into heaven. Now, if you're not an apologetic type of person, I don't recommend this. Because all you do when you debate and stuff, you're just, you're just hacking people off. But if you're an analytical person and you're into apologetics and you're really good at this, you can have a debate without hacking people off, then go for it. And this is why I don't like people standing on the street corner screaming. I grew up with that. It's just like, you can beat people into heaven with the Bible? No, you can't do that. But you can reason with them right into heaven. Some people can do that. Let me tell you about the analytics of Jesus. If you get into a conversation with Jesus, he will not let you back yourself out of the room until he shows you the truth himself. And he will convince you that he is real. So I say meet him at the place of your doubts and he will turn it into faith. But when he does, he will force you to put your fingers in the scar like he did Thomas. Because you will have to go further than those who just have faith. You will have to go further to get your faith. But once you have it, you're the type of person you're never going to let it go. There's pros and cons to different personalities. See, once Thomas touched Jesus' scar, he never lost faith. Jesus lifted his garment, his shirt, and to reveal the scar and he, you know, that, that he took into heaven with him. He said, Thomas, right there, go ahead, touch it. And Thomas was like, I, I, I don't have to touch it. I, I, no, I don't need it. And he goes, no, you need to touch it. And the wound where the spear went into him that pierced his heart was right there. 
You know what the Apostle Thomas actually ended up doing? Where he ended up? He ended up in India. He went all the way to India. He was martyred there. His tomb is still there. The Indian Christians are very proud of their Apostle Thomas. Ironically, the Indian people are very analytical type of people. Indians value education. My wife went to college with a lot of them, getting her undergrad, and then we went to college, the grad. We call it the Indian Mafia. There was lots of them, and they knew what was going on. This is one reason why I think miracles happen in India so much, because they can't argue with what they see. Now, the great thing about the Lord and, and that he appears to all types of people, he, you know, he went on to appear the guys fishing on the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And then he, he appeared on the mountainside of the Sea of Galilee to all the people that were gathered. And then he went to, to Jerusalem and appeared to 500 people there. You know, one thing that's not talked about much is on the day that Jesus was resurrected, he also brought with him Several others who had been dead for years. And they walked around Jerusalem preaching the gospel. Matthew tells us about this in his book. Go find it in the book of Matthew. He says it happened. So we see these things and we come to understand that there are, there are no arguments that this has not happened. There are no arguments at all that this did not happen until all the witnesses and their children were dead. And that's when people started saying there was no Jesus Christ. Right now in India, guys are going village to village, showing the movie. It's called the Jesus Movie by Indian actors that they put together. And the crowds weep at his crucifixion. Now we're talking Muslims and Hindus are weeping at the, at the crucifixion. And they're standing up and cheering at the resurrection. Now is that, to me, that's awesome. They're becoming believers. It makes me kind of sad that we do not get more excited about this stuff. It makes me sad that we do not get more excited about the Holy Spirit and, and working within us and within the, the church. You know, I've grown up all my life hearing about the resurrection. I wish I got more excited about it. I wish I got more excited about Easter because the disciples celebrated Easter every week. We do it once a year because we, you know, it's marked on the calendar. That's when we celebrate it. Man, I wish we got more excited about it. It makes me sad that I don't wake up every morning as excited as I should be. That Jesus broke through death and so will I. That Jesus broke through sin and so will I. We need to get more excited about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because death is coming for each of us. I'm very aware of death right now with dealing with my brother-in-law and dealing with the family health issues and, and other people are going through the same thing. But I will tell you what. Every time I think of death, I think of what Jesus said. Where I am going, you are coming also. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come, and I will get you. That is very exciting for me. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Christ, then we would just be a bunch of idiots wasting our time on Sundays, wouldn't we be? That's why it's exciting that we know about the resurrection of Christ. Okay, verse 4. We're going very quickly here. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. He reminds them of everything he taught them. 
Luke 24, 34 says it, that Luke taught, you know, that Jesus taught them so much. And I think one of the, I don't know if it's Luke or one of the other guys that, that said, you know, one of the other gospels that said, he taught so much that it cannot be written down in books. It would take too many volumes. In the gospels, the disciples basically just watched and learned from Jesus. If you go back and read all four Gospels, you'll see that they accomplished very little. The disciples, the followers, accomplished very little while Jesus was here on this earth. On a good day, they just didn't get in the way. They would argue with Jesus. In many ways, they're kind of clueless a lot. But now, we will see them do so much more because the power of the Holy Spirit will be living in them and will anoint them. It's amazing what they ended up doing. And it's the same way with us. The Holy Spirit can anoint us to the point where we shine like stars in the heavens when we talk about Jesus Christ and when we live our lives out like we should and this world will look at us and go, there's something different about that person. I want to find out why. And people will start to listen. Well, we're out of time for today. But let me say, we need to start craving the power of of the Holy Spirit in our lives and not be satisfied, you know, not be satisfied to live our lives just kind of this watered-down Christian walk that we often do. And I'm including me in that. There are times in my life where I'm just sitting there going, ah, oh, I'm tired. I need to stop living my life that way. I need to be more excited about what Jesus can and will do. You know, this is not just kind of an okay thing and a religion that's just something I do on Sundays. We need to go beyond that. We need to get to the point where our lives are changed so much where we talk about what God is doing. We talk about what God has done, what He is doing now, and what He will do in the future. Not only for you and I, but for this world. For the lost that are out there that need Jesus Christ. Hmm. Let's pray. Lord, so many of us just wish we could experience what the disciples experienced. We wish we could have been there with you on this earth. Yet the greatest things that they ever did, Lord, were after you were gone. Because you left them with a part of you. And that part of you lives in us today. And I pray that we start recognizing that. That we start getting to a point where we're excited in our lives about what you can do that we build our relationships to the point where other people just look at us and just think, wow, what is, what is up with them? But in a good way, Lord. I pray, Lord, that this week as we read the book of Acts, well, first of all, Lord, I pray that we, we do pick up your word and read the book of Acts. But if we do, that your Holy Spirit starts to work in our lives, that we start recognizing the miracles that you have for us, Sometimes they're huge miracles that everybody sees. And sometimes they're such tiny miracles that only you and I recognize them, Lord. But I pray that we recognize them in our lives. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May His face always turn toward you. May His Holy Spirit always be active in you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.